0: Uh, We're going to get right to it and open your Bibles with me to Hebrews chapter 7. Uh, We're going to tackle the entire chapter today. Uh, I'm not going to read it all because uh, it's an incredibly difficult passage to begin with and just reading it uh, may cause our heads to spin. And and as you're turning there, what I want to do this morning is acknowledge the difficulty of this text and then share a couple of things with you in that regard. Some things I was just thinking about this week, some things that occurred to me that I thought would be worthwhile saying to you when we get into a passage like this. Um, First thing I thought of uh, in regards to this passage is that it's important that we don't avoid it. You know, avoiding uh, difficult passages does two things. It makes me unfaithful and it stunts your spiritual growth. And so I'm not going to avoid I don't want to avoid a passage like this, even though this is, this is a seriously difficult passage. You know, one, one, there, there's a couple reasons why people don't mature, don't grow up. Well, one reason is that people are lazy. They don't grow up. And I think that there can be, uh, sometimes the author of Hebrews even touched on this back in chapter 5, there's spiritual laziness. And sometimes we don't grow up because we're spiritual, spiritually lazy. But then other times... Uh, the problem is that your pastors and teachers coddle you and they don't teach you the deep things of God and that stunts your spiritual growth. And so I'm not going to coddle you today. We're going to dive into this and, and deal with it and it's going to be difficult, but we're going to get through it. And then the second thing that I thought of is, is you know, that, that, that when we avoid hard passages, we diminish the importance and the authority of God's Word in our life. You know what the Bible says in in 2 Timothy chapter 3? It says, all Scripture is breathed out by God. You know this passage? All Scripture is breathed out by God. And then he says, and it's all profitable. All Scripture. Listen, not just the easy passages. All Scripture. Hebrews 7 is profitable for us. It's breathed out by God. It's meant to, to help us to grow. So, so we're going to dig in, we're going to focus here. And then and, and then the other thing that I want to say, and this is super important, and if you went through the, the class on Wednesday nights, by the way, that starts back up this week. Uh, but last year, if you went through the class where we walked through the entire Bible, one of the things I tried to stress over and over again was that when you approach the Bible, any passage in the Bible, but particularly these difficult passages, you have to start with the right question. And the right question is, What does this passage tell me about God? That's the first thing, right? This is God's self-revelation. A lot of times we go to difficult passages like this, we read them, and then we say, well, what does that have to do with me? Well, brothers and sisters, that's not the question when you're in the Bible. I mean, we should try to apply it, and I'm going to do that today. But the first and most important question is, what does this teach me about God? What does this teach me about Christ? And if you look at it in that, uh, through that lens, if you look at, at Hebrews chapter 7 and ask the question, what does this teach me about my Savior? I promise you, it, instead of becoming so difficult, it becomes a glorious picture of the Savior who gave Himself for you. That's what this is all about. And so having said that, having prefaced it that way, let's, let's jump right in and get to it. We're going we're gonna to pick up. In fact, let's pick up in chapter 6, verse 19. Chapter 6, verse 19, where the writer of Hebrews says, We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor for the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Verse 1, For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to him, Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. He is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness. And then he is also king of Salem, that is, king of peace. He's without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. You can stop right there. And that's as far as we're going to go for right now. We're going to pick up little pieces of it as we go. The whole chapter is really a, a chapter about comparing Jesus to this strange character named Melchizedek. And, and you might remember that we're just uh, resuming the discussion that we started weeks ago where at the uh, in chapter 4, Towards the end of chapter 4, we take up the subject of Jesus as our great high priest. And then after he tells us about Jesus as a high priest, at the end of, or in the middle, sorry, of chapter 5, in verse 10, he says that Jesus has been designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. That's back in chapter 5. And then he stopped there dealt with a few issues he needed to deal with before we got to this really difficult passage, and now he's picking it up again, dealing with this idea of of Jesus as a high priest in the order of Melchizedek. Now, you have to remember, you have to remember when we study the book of Hebrews, the central thesis of the book. You remember what the central thesis of this book is? Can anybody shout it out to me? Jesus Jesus is better. Good job. That's what it's all about. And it begins by telling us that that Jesus is better than the angels. That's how he started the discussion. He goes on and and he tells us that Jesus is better than Moses. And now he's going to tell us that Jesus is a better high priest. And the way that he describes Jesus as a better high priest is by pointing out that he comes from a different order of priests. He's not like, uh, he is in many ways, but not uh, completely like, the priest of Israel, they come from a different order, which we'll get to in just a few moments. But Jesus comes from the order of Melchizedek. Now, the looming question for us is, who's Melchizedek? <laughs> Who is this guy? Just hold your spot there in Hebrews and turn to Genesis chapter 14. Genesis chapter 14. He is a mysterious character in the Bible. He appears one time in the Bible. Just very quickly, he appears on the scene in Genesis chapter 14. And then after that, he's gone again, and he's not mentioned again until uh, Pastor Nick read from Psalm 110. That's the second mention of Melchizedek, just quickly. And then again, when we get to Hebrews, we have the most extensive discussion about Melchizedek. But here in Genesis chapter 14 is where we see him. And I wanted to take you there because... It's important that you understand what's going on here. So Abraham uh, had gone out, and, and what's going on in chapter 14 of, of Genesis is uh, Abraham's nephew Lot has gotten caught up in a battle between nine different kings. It would be one thing to get caught up in a battle of two kings, but there are nine kings, five on one side, four on the other, and they're battling it out, and one of the kings is the king of Sodom where Lot happens to be living and this king is defeated. And Lot, Abraham's nephew, is carried off into captivity by these people along with all the possessions of Sodom. The armies carry them away and they go. And now somebody comes and reports to Abraham that his nephew has been taken off as spoil in, in, this, in this battle. And so Abraham, he gets together 318 fighting men. Now follow me here, this is a this is sermon all in itself. He gets together 318 fighting men, and he goes out and he pursues the king who's taken his nephew hostage. And he goes out and he defeats that king, takes back his nephew, takes back all the possessions of Sodom, and is able to return those things to their rightful place. Now, here's the principle I'll just will say and move on. I don't have a lot of time to dwell here. But I want you to understand that what, what Abraham has done is he has, has defeated a number of kings that, that couldn't be defeated by another whole group of kings in their armies. With just 318 men, he's gone out and he's done what army after army after army after army and king after king and king and king couldn't do. And you know why he was able to do it? Because if God be for us, who can be against us? So he's gone out and he has, uh, has taken his nephew Lot back to him and he's taken the possessions of Sodom. We pick up in verse uh, 17. After his return from the defeat of Chedorlaomer and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him in the valley of Sheva. That is the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, here he is. He shows up out of nowhere. Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was a priest of God most high. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, Professor of Heaven and Earth, or Creator of Heaven and Earth, and blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. That's it. That's the only time this Melchizedek appears in person in the Bible. Just that quick passage, and then, then he's gone again. And like I said, he's mentioned by David in Psalm 110. But what I want to stress here as we start to explore Melchizedek a little deeper, is that it's not nearly as important who he was as a man individually. We're not getting all caught up in Melchizedek the person. What we're interested in here is Melchizedek the type. And that may sound strange to you, but all throughout the Bible we have things called types. And types are things that represent something or someone Who's coming in a time after, and there are various things in the Bible, various types. But many of times when we talk about types, we're talking about types of Christ. There are different people and different things that represent Christ when He appears on the scene. For instance, here's a, an example of a type of Christ. How many of you remember the bronze serpent in the wilderness? You remember that, and so Israel had uh, fallen out of God's good graces. And they were dealing with uh, serpents all over the camp and, and Moses is told to take a bronze serpent, lift it up in the middle of the camp and anybody who looks at that serpent will be healed. Remember that story? And later on, we're told in the New Testament that in the same way the serpent was lifted up in the wilderness, Jesus had to be lifted up in the wilderness so that anyone who looks to Him can be saved. It's just a type. And there are types all throughout the Old Testament. We think of the lamb, the Passover lamb that was given up Uh, as a sacrifice for the sins of the people so that God's wrath would pass over the people. You know about the Passover lamb, right? That's a type of Jesus. When Jesus appears on the River Jordan, John looks at him and he says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Right, so that's a, a type. And Melchizedek is a type. He's foreshadowing the role that Jesus would play for us. And so let's look at this. And let's uh, let's look at who Melchizedek was and and how does he represent Jesus to us. Y'all ready? Y'all still with me? Haven't lost you yet? All right, number one, here's the first thing. Y'all just got to do this the old-fashioned way. Nothing's going to pop up on the screen for you. First thing, Melchizedek, as a type, Melchizedek was a king and a priest. We see that right away. He was a king and a priest. And as a foreshadowing of Jesus, we know that Jesus also is a king and a priest. Look at verse 1 and verse 2. It says, For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, we're back in chapter 7, by the way, of Hebrews, if you haven't figured that out, back in Hebrews chapter 7, this Melchizedek, King of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abram returning from the slaughter of kings and blessed him. So Melchizedek was both a priest and a king, the same way that, that Jesus is. And, and that makes him different than every other priest of Israel. And that's where I said that, that there are, uh, there's another order of priests. When we talk about the order of the priest of Israel, we're talking about the Levitical priesthood. That's the order where all the other priests come from. They come from the tribe or the lineage of Levi, all of them. And in order to be a priest in Israel, you had to trace your lineage, your bloodline backward all the way to the person Levi. You had to be a member of that particular tribe. But Jesus was not after the order of Levi. He's a different kind of priest. He's after the order of Melchizedek. He's a Melchizedekian priest. You see Jesus as a a better priest because he's not only a priest. All the priests, uh, uh, the Levitical priests, were just priests. But now we have Jesus who's a priest and he's a king. He's different. He is, by translation, he tells us again, something about the the name foreshadowing the work of Jesus. Listen, he is first, by translation of his name in verse 2, king of righteousness. And then he is also king of Salem, that is, king of peace. So Melchizedek was a righteous king. And he foreshadows the uh, Jesus as the king of righteousness. Jesus is a righteous king. You know what that means when we talk about the righteousness of Jesus? We mean that Jesus, listen to this, it's important. Jesus fulfilled every single jot and tittle of the Old Testament law. He perfectly obeyed the law. He lived His life in perfect submission and obedience to the Father. In that way, He was righteous. You and I are not righteous. Amen? You with me on that? Any, any righteous people in here? That's right. You got it right, Nick. See, we're not righteous, but Jesus is righteous. Jesus is the, the, the King of righteousness and you may not uh, realize how important that is but but i want you to know and i say this a lot and i hope that you pick up on it when i say it i want you to know that it's important because jesus didn't just die for our sins he lived for our righteousness have you ever wondered why jesus had to be 33 years old why he had to live that long Before He went to the cross, you were wondering about that? Like, why didn't Jesus just show up on Friday? Go to the cross, go to the grave, come out of the grave on Sunday, ascend to the Father, and it's all done. Why did He have to live? Why did He come as a little infant? Why did He live as a little boy? Why did He go through those adolescent years? Why did He live as a teenager? and why did he grow up into an adult why did he do those things why was that necessary well the reason is he was living your life in your place as a little child as as a adolescent as a teenager as an adult he was living in your place and the bible tells us this in in first corinthians or second corinthians chapter 5 it says for our sake jesus was made to be sin The one who knew no sin was made to be sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Do you know that that what Jesus did uh, or what he does for us is he makes a great exchange for us? When we talk about our sins being forgiven, you know uh, our sins when we place our faith in Jesus. All your sin, listen to how good this is. All your sin, the sins you committed way back years ago, decades ago, all those sins, all the sins you committed this morning, all the sins you'll commit tomorrow and next week and and the week after that, all of your sin was credited to Jesus on the cross. And all the righteous life He lived for you, all those 33 years, all that righteousness has been credited to your account. That's the exchange so that we know that we're justified in God not because we're righteous but because Jesus was righteous for us he's the king of righteousness he's the king of peace just like melchizedek the king of peace he's the, he's the one who makes peace between God and man well that's good news isn't it that we can be at peace with God you know i I want to say something Uh, to you today. If you're in the room, I don't know all of you. I look out there, I see a a few faces I don't know. And I can't see into any of your hearts. But I want to say something to you that's really important. If you've never placed your faith in Jesus as your Savior, hear what I'm about to say. You are not at peace with God. The fact is, you are an enemy of God. I mean, that is a, a horrible thing to think of. And later on in the book of Hebrews, the writer tells us that it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Think about that. Do something with me real quick. I don't usually flip you all around the Bibles like this, but turn to Luke chapter 16 with me. Luke chapter 16. And we're going to be in verse 19. I'll read it fast. I'm going to read it real fast. I just want you to hear it. Luke chapter 16, verse 19. It says, Jesus says, There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day, and at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. What a terrible situation. Who suffer the heavy hand of God's wrath. This man who had it all in life never did have find salvation in this life. And now he's suffering in eternal anguish. And and somehow or another, this makes it even worse. He can look up there and he can see those who've gone on to glory. And he says, Can't you just send somebody to dip their finger in the water and cool my tongue? I'm suffering. But Abraham said, Child, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things, and Lazarus in like manner bad things, but now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed, in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. In other words, it's final, it's finished. There's no going back. And he says, then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house for I have five brothers so that they may warn them lest any of them come to this place of torment. What a horrible thing to fall into the hands of a living God. But there's good news, isn't there? There's a king of righteousness and a king of peace. And he makes peace between us and God, Listen to Romans chapter 5, verse 1. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. You are able to have peace with God because Jesus is our King of peace. Let me show you another thing about Melchizedek and how he foreshadows the, the work of Jesus. Look at, uh, go back to Hebrews chapter 7. And I want you to look at verse 3. Hebrews chapter 7, verse 3. It says that he is without father. This is a strange, strange statement about Melchizedek. It says that he is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. Now, where we get hung up on this is the first part of verse 3. It says that Melchizedek had neither a father, mother, or genealogy. In the beginning of days, no end of life. What's that all about? And, and here's what I want, I want to answer. A quick question some of you may have. Some of you are going to ask or may be wondering. Pastor, do you think... That Melchizedek was a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus? It says that he didn't have a mother, didn't have a father, had no beginning of days, no end of life. Do you think that what we're seeing in Genesis chapter 14 is Jesus showing up in pre-incarnate form? Because he does that in the Old Testament. My answer is no, I don't think that's who, who Melchizedek is. I think Melchizedek was a man. And I think when it says that he was without father or mother of genealogy, I think it just means we don't know where he came from. We don't know anything about him. We don't know when the beginning of his life was. He disappeared from the scene after Genesis 14. We don't know when the end of his life was. He's this mysterious figure who seems to have no beginning, no end, no genealogy. And in that way, he resembles the Son of God. He's not the Son of God. He resembles the Son of God. And what we need to focus on is not whether Melchizedek had a mom and a dad. What we need to focus on is the last words of verse 3 where it says he resembles the Son of God where he continues a priest forever. The high priestly ministry of Jesus never ends. This is such good news. I, I, I can tell by the silence of the room we haven't quite got it yet. Because I'm telling you, this is is shouting kind of news, brothers and sisters. Listen, listen, the the, the priesthood of Jesus, the high priestly office of Jesus will never come to an end. In fact, that's what makes him so much better. And I didn't read all of chapter 7. You can go read it in light of all of what I've said today. Uh, What makes him so much better as a priest, as a high priest, is that all the Levitical priests, guess what happened to them? They just died. They died, and another one take their place. And he died, and another one take his place. And he died, and another one take it. And thousands and thousands upon ten thousands of priests came and went, and they all died, and they all went away. But this high priest, this high priest, his office will never end. Go go to verse twenty three. Skip all the way to verse twenty three. And here he makes the point clear for us. Look at verse twenty three. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. And this is Jesus now. But He holds His priesthood permanently because He continues forever. Now listen to this. I'm not sure I can even grasp this. I'm going to be honest with you. I'm not even sure I really quite get it. But He says, Consequently, He's able to save to the uttermost. Those who draw near to God through Him, since He always lives to make intercession for them. Right now, I'm I'm really being honest with you. This is not uh, preacher stuff. I'm just being straight with you. I'm not quite sure uh, how to understand the intercessory work of Jesus. I just know that somehow, some way, like in 1 John, I'm told that He's my advocate. Like he literally argues on my behalf like a defense attorney. I'm told that he's a mediator in the New Testament. That he stands between me and, and God. I'm told here that he's forever making intercession for me. I don't know what all that means. I just know that somehow or another, uh, when I mess up, somehow or another, when I'm uh, not living the way I should, somehow or another, uh, Jesus is standing before the Father and he says, he's with me. And I've lived his life for him in his place and accept the life I lived on his behalf and somehow or another that makes me justified before God and he does it forever he always lives to make intercession uh, I, I think it's it's a good place for me to say this I've preached on this many times in this pulpit but brothers and sisters let's be clear about that, about this I can't lose my salvation because in order to lose it, I'd have to get Jesus to stop interceding for me. And He never stops. He always lives to make intercession for me. He never stops. When you're saved from the wrath of God, listen to me, when you're saved from the wrath of God, you are saved by the high priestly work of Jesus Christ. He represented you before God. He offered a sacrifice for your sin, and now forevermore He intercedes on your behalf before God. That's your great high priest. You see, when we go to a place like Hebrews 7, we read it, and, and you go read it this afternoon, and you'll be more confused than you were at the beginning of the sermon after you read it. But just try to focus your attention on Jesus And what are we being told about Jesus here? He's our great high priest. He's not just a priest, he's also our king. The king of righteousness and the king of peace. And his office as our king and as our great high priest is a permanent office. And thereby, because of what he's done, we are saved to the uttermost. All because of Jesus. That's good news. Amen. Amen. So now let me say, what, what do we do? Gary, you can join me. And so what do we do as a result of, of this, this truth? I just wrote down two words, two words in my notes. Number one, if you're a Christian, if you've trusted Jesus as your Savior then rejoice. You have a great high priest who at this moment is interceding on your behalf. And he'll never stop. He'll never stop. I don't even know how that works. So somehow as I'm worshiping him in eternity, he'll be interceding for me. I don't know how it all works. But rejoice. Like when you come to worship on a Sunday, we, we ought to be, these are the kind of things we ought to carry in here with us. That we come here... We sing the songs because we're exalting our high priest, our King of righteousness, our King of peace. We're exalting Him. We're praising Him. So if you're a Christian today, in response to this truth of Hebrews chapter 7, the application for your life is simple. Just rejoice. Rejoice in it. Love it. Meditate on it. Treasure it this week. Every time this week when you fall, when you fail... Rejoice in the truth that there's a high priest in heaven interceding. And then the second word I wrote down is for those who don't know Jesus as Savior. And that word is repent. You do not want to find yourself as an enemy of God. It's a fearful and awful and terrible thing. To face the wrath of God. So today's your opportunity, right now, to just repent, turn from your sins, and ask Jesus, as the high priest who offered himself for your sins, ask him to forgive you. Trust him as your Savior, promise to follow him as Lord. And the Bible gives us this promise. And remember, we learned this last week God cannot lie. He cannot lie. So here's the promise. Whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. So if you don't know him, today's the day to repent. Let's pray. Let's rejoice. Father, we thank you for Jesus. Father, help us to see past our shallow vision of Jesus sometimes we see Him as just a great teacher, just a, a gentle rabbi. Sometimes we see Him sometimes as a revolutionary or, or a lamb. Father, while all those things are true, help us to see Him first as our great high priest. Knowing that every priest, every priest, including Melchizedek, pointed to You, pointed to our Savior, Jesus. Help us to see the One who represented us before God and who has offered the perfect sacrifice for our sins. As our great high priest, He's entered into the Holy of Holies not made with hands and presented the blood of his sacrifice one time forever. And now he lives to forever make intercession.